0: Please stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Our passage scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 10, and we're going to read verses 1 through 15, where the Holy Scriptures read. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these First Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the brother, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 sent, were sent out by Jesus struck, as he instructed them, "'Go nowhere among the Gentiles "'and enter no town of the Samaritans, "'but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, "'and proclaim as you go, saying, "'The kingdom of heaven is at hand.'" Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without pay, so give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts and no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. And as you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy... Let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin this morning? Father, we ask that we would see the truth of this text in a way that not only enlightens our minds, but our hearts and our affections. Lord, I ask that I would not be an an obstacle to the communication of this text, that I would not add confusion, that I would not speak my opinions or my ideas or my thoughts. But help me to be a conduit to communicate simply your thoughts as expressed in this passage. Your word is authoritative, it is binding, it is the one and only true thing that we can count on in this life for our truth and understanding. So help us now to understand this, remove distractions, remove tiredness, remove the worries and anxieties of life from our minds as we attempt to focus for just a few short minutes here on the glorious truths of God's word. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name, amen. You may be seated. Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere. On the 18th of April in 75, hardly a man is now alive who remembers that famous day and year. It was the spring of 1775 when the famous words rang out into the night. The British are coming. The British are coming. For on that night, a man became a legend as he set out and rode into the night out to Lexington, Massachusetts, to warn the people that the regular army redcoats were, in fact, finally coming. See, the American colonies had received word that the British army was moving in to arrest both Samuel Adams and John Hancock and that they would then proceed on into Concord to destroy their military stores of gunpowder, ammunition, and cannons that had been stockpiled there. And so, upon receiving this information, Paul Revere set out in the middle of the night. He didn't pack a bag. He didn't settle his affairs. He didn't bring any food with him. He just set out in order to bring this most important message. He then met two of his friends, who they helped him like slip past this giant. British warship in the darkness of night by ferrying him across the river into Charlestown, where he borrowed a horse and set out in order to bring a message of the utmost importance. <clears throat> right into the night, Revere narrowly avoided capture from a number of British officers in the area and eventually he arrived at the town of Lexington. However, as he approached the house where Adams and Hancock were staying, not everyone there was quite so excited for his shouts in the night. After all, it was the middle of the night. People were sound asleep. Who did this man think he was being so rude, waking everybody up in the middle of the night? That's quite inconsiderate, the guard outside the house thought. It's late, the guard shouted. Stop making so much noise. People are trying to sleep, man. And Revere responded, noise? You'll have noise soon enough, good sir, for the regulars are coming. Still, the guard at that wasn't going to let him in, and it was only because John Hancock, who was still awake, heard Revere's voice and then invited him in, where he then received his vitally important message, which, as we know, forever changed the course of human history. And why? All because one man, upon hearing such an important and meaningful message, set out without hesitation in the middle of the night. He set out, Freely, without payment, I must remind you. Why? In order to bring a costly message of immense importance. Church, in Matthew chapter 10, we come to a passage here where Jesus has just sent out his 12 Paul reverers to do just that, to bring an important message that absolutely needs to be heard. A message that is freely given and freely received, and a message. That brings costly consequences if it is rejected. And so this morning, please turn with me your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, follow along in verses 1 through 15, where we're gonna find three reasons why the message of Jesus' ambassadors is so important, why it matters. The message matters, and here's our outline this morning because one, it's important, two, it's free, and three, it's costly. Why does the message of Christ's ambassadors matter? Why should we even care about it? Well, we should care because the message is, point one, it's quite important. It's very important. Has anyone here ever gotten one of those really important messages left on your voicemail? You know the ones I'm talking about where it starts with, this is a really important message. Anybody ever got one of those? It gets your attention right away, though, doesn't it? At least at first. Because, hey, who wants to miss a vitally important message? Not me. I don't want to do that. But then it goes on to say, this is an important message about your car's extended warranty. (laughs) And then you suddenly realize, "This is they lied to me. This isn't quite so important. Now, here's the thing. We live in a culture where we are constantly being told by somebody that they have something very important to tell us. And usually that comes out in the form of selling us something, getting something out of us. And because of this, this makes it quite easy for us to be like that guard who's like, be quiet, I'm going back to sleep. I don't care what you have to say. I know you think it's important. My car's fine. I don't even have extended warranty on my car. Why are you calling? We can easily get that way. But here's the thing. Just as Revere was actually bringing an important message, so too are the ambassadors of Christ. It's, equal, it's actually more important. And what exactly is that message? It's not about your car's extended warranty. It's actually a whole lot closer to the warranty of your soul. And that's a pretty cringy analogy, so I'm just going to move right on beyond that and cut to the chase here. Do you know what the message of Jesus isn't? It's not. God loves you and has a perfect plan for your life. Anybody ever heard that one before? It's not it. You can turn on the TV, you'll hear a whole lot of people selling you that. Nor is Jesus' message, God sees your pain, your hurt, and your suffering, and he wants to make the boo-boos better. That's not it either. Nor is it God, oh, he just needs you in his life. He left heaven to come after you because he couldn't have heaven without you. That's not the message of the gospel. What is the message of the gospel? What is this message? To simply put it, it's this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Which basically means what? Lay down your arms, you rebel sinners, for the king is coming to conquer his enemies. Stop your treasonous traitoring and bow the knee. But that doesn't sound very welcoming. That doesn't sound very affirming, though, does it? You're right, it doesn't. That message is a message that will absolutely offend people. It will frustrate guards who just want to sleep in the middle of the night and not be awakened to this truth. Which of us likes being woken up suddenly in the middle of the night with a message to get out of bed? Not me. Not ever. It's uncomfortable. It messes up my plans. It ruins my dreams. Literally. But so what? So what if people don't want to be disturbed by their blissful slumber? So what if people don't want to be woke up in the middle of the night because the reality is if they aren't woken, wokened, wakened, whatever, They don't wake up. They're not going to hear the important message that they need to hear, and they're going to miss out in a vitally crucial way. Now, why do I say the important message here is a message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Why do I say repentance? That's what Matthew says, right? Remember way back in chapter 3 what our wild-haired, locust-eating friend John the Baptist said when he was preaching in the wilderness? Here's what he preached. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right, which is exactly the same message that Jesus was preaching, which is what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the same message. And this is precisely the same message that Jesus sends his disciples out to preach. He doesn't say, hey, go go tell all these people in these towns that that God just loves you and he wants you to have a happy, thrilled, awesome life. It's not the message. It's repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's a warning. It absolutely is. And this is precisely the message that they went out and preached. But wait a minute, look at verse 7. It doesn't say the word repent there, does it? Uh-oh, preacher, gotcha. It doesn't say that. It, doesn't say, it, just, it just says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I don't see repent. Well, that's because the word repent is implied here. See, Matthew assumes you've read the first nine chapters of his book. You didn't just jump in cold turkey to find a verse and pull it out of context and throw it on a nice coffee cup. He assumes you read the first nine chapters of the book, which is how then you would know that this repentance is implied. But regardless, I can cheat here and I can show you what Mark says when he tells the same exact event, the same exact story here of God's, of Christ sending out his disciples. He says this in Mark six twelve. So they went out and, repro- and proclaimed, there we go, that people should what? Repent. The point is this. Repentance is fundamental to the gospel message of Jesus Christ because without repentance, and hear me when I say this, please, without repentance, you don't get into the kingdom. Full stop. You don't. You do not get into the kingdom. That's why the warning, the message is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. A few verses here I want to show you this. Acts 3.19. Repent, therefore, and turn back. That's what repentance is. It's turning from your sin, that your sins may be blotted out. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And then the classic 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think the Bible is crystal clear on this matter. Repentance is a vital and necessary component to being born again. And in order to repent, what does that mean that we got to do? How do we repent? What's that look like? Well, it means, first off, you got to come to see your sin as God sees your sin. Sin's not a mess up. Sin's not a boo-boo. Sin's not an owie. It's not a mistake. It's not just making a slight error. What is sin? Sin. Sin is wickedness. Sin is rebellion against a holy God. And might I remind you, an all-powerful holy God who is completely just and who will by no means spare the guilty. Now, with that said, there's a lot going on in this passage this morning that we might miss if we aren't paying really close attention. I've done my best to kind of distill it down here. But even with that, I think it's going to be quite easy to maybe not catch what's going on. So I think to fix that, what we can do is you do your best to stay awake and follow along and I will do my best to be clear here. So put your thinking caps on here as we go through this. Jesus here in this text, he's about to send his disciples out to do exactly what he's been doing in the last few chapters, which is what? Heal the sick, right? Raise the dead. And he did that as he preached the kingdom. So that's what he's sending them out to do preach the kingdom and do miracles. It's sort of a test run. It's on the job training for them because that's what Jesus was doing in chapters eight and nine. He was healing people. But what, thing about this, what does healing have to do with repentance? Why are those two things together? Repent for the kingdom is at hand. Boom, lots of miracles. Why are those together? What's the connection here? It's a good question, but it's a slightly more complicated answer. Question for you. If you were going to summarize Jesus' entire earthly ministry, what would you say it's about? In one word. You're going to give a lot of right answers, so I'm just going to give you the right answer that I want. Yeah, salvation. But sin. Oh, thank you. I'm getting lots of water now. Lenny and thank you. Thank you, Lenny. Thank you, Doug. Appreciate it. All right. Sin. Jesus' entire mission was about dealing with with humanity's sin. The miracles show that. Not only do they show that, but they are proving that Jesus not only has the authority to deal with sin, but he actually has the power to do something about it. Right? Talk is cheap. And he does more than talk. They are proving that everything that Jesus taught back in the Sermon on the Mount, as we saw back in chapters 5 through 7, wasn't make-believe. It was absolutely true. Now, when it comes to every sickness and disease, what is the ultimate thing to blame here? What's the the ultimate cause of all sin, sickness, and disease? Same answer as before, sin, right? That's what it's caused from. Now, don't misunderstand me here. I'm not saying the sinner is to blame for all sickness and suffering. That's not true. Not even close to true. That's a massive difference between the two. Because some people out there will tell you that if you are sick, if you are suffering, if you are hurting, it's because you've got personal sin in your life that is directly causing it. And if you want to get better, then you've got to repent. It's not true. Now, at the same time, sometimes we know this as a church. We've talked about this every time pretty much we do the Lord's Supper. Sometimes that is true. Sometimes we know from 1 Corinthians 13 that there is sickness and suffering in our life because of direct sin that we refuse to, to confess and repent of, but it's not always true. For sometimes, hear me when I say this, sometimes there is sickness, suffering, and hardship in this world simply because it's a sin-fallen world and the effects of sin hit us without prejudice, without blame. Now with that said, as we saw in chapters 8 and 9, Jesus' healing miracles show us that he has both the authority and the power to deal with sin. How do they show that? How do they show that he has the authority and the power to deal with sin? Well, I don't have time to jump back into all of that. We took a couple months to get through chapters 8 and 9. But here's the short recap version. Though sin makes us unclean, like with the leper and the unclean woman with the bleeding disorder, Jesus not only makes the physically unclean clean, but the spiritually unclean clean. And how does he do it? With just a touch all it takes. Though sin makes us blind and unable to see our spiritual condition, like with the blind men, Jesus is not only able to give physical sight, but spiritual sight. It keeps going here. You get the idea. Though sin makes us lame and unable to walk spiritually after our God, like the young man who was lowered through their roof, roof, what happens here? Jesus can not only restore our physical legs, but our spiritual ones, so that we can once again, as Adam and Eve did, walk with God in the garden. Though sin brings us into bondage to satanic powers, like with the demoniac, the demon-possessed men, as we sing every Christmas, Emmanuel can free us from thine Satan's tyranny. He can free us from it. And he can do all of this just Because, like with the young girl who died, not only can Jesus raise us physically from the dead, but he can raise us spiritually from the dead, which is our ultimate need that every one of us is born into and needs desperately. See, the miracles of Jesus prove to a sin-fallen, pain-filled world that he can heal our sin and bring peace to a peaceless world. And why? Because he's the Prince of Peace. Verses 5 and 6, they in these, in these verses here, Jesus instructs his Paul Revere's to go where? Who's he tell him to go to? The whole world? Nope, not the lost. Look at the verses. The Jews, right? He tells them to go to the lost sheep of Israel, and why? Because that's why he came to heal and shepherd his people, Israel. And we don't have time to look at all these Old Testament passages. There's a lot of them that I wish we could look at, but we don't have time to, where it shows and talks about how the Messiah would come and shepherd God's people, Israel. Remember about a year ago what Matthew wrote in chapter 2 about this? He wrote this, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Matthew makes it clear to us that Jesus' mission was primarily here to the Jews. It wasn't to the rest of the world, at least not yet. And why not? Well, because Jesus is prejudiced. No, that's not why. It was because God's plan for salvation was for the Jews first and then the Gentiles. What's a Gentile? That's everybody who's not a Jew, basically. That's everyone in this room. Well, probably pretty much everyone in this room most in this room. We'll go with that because I don't know. But the point is God's plan of salvation was for the Jew first and then the Gentile, which is everybody else. Salvation was meant to come to the Jewish people first, who would then be a light to all of the nations of the world as they were a light and would then bring the message of salvation to them. And over and over throughout Jesus's earthly mission, as we've seen in the book of Matthew, he's hinting at this. He's not just saying, nope, only the Jews. No, he's showing through what he's doing, through his actions, through what he taught, that this was the plan all along. Uh, Richard Dawkins is an atheist who um, I've spent a lot of time reading because I'm really into apologetics. But anyways, he made a point, I remember a while back, he said Jesus would have rolled over in his grave if he would have seen that Paul brought the message to the Gentiles. Well, for one, Jesus isn't in his grave. He rose from the dead. But second off, that's absolutely not correct. Jesus was not anti-Gentile. It was Jew first and then the Greek and then the Gentiles. And we see hints of this all throughout Jesus's ministry, right? Some of the first people who came and worshiped Jesus were the Gentile Magi. Jesus reveals who he is early on to who? The Samaritan woman, not Jewish. Jesus heals the Gentiles, uh, the, let's see, the centurion's servant. And he was a Gentile. After Jesus crosses the sea and calms the storm, he heals two demon-possessed men. And this is a Gentile region. So most likely, these were Gentile men. Which is why after the demons come out, those go into the pigs nearby. If you know anything about the Jewish people, they didn't have pigs like that. The Gentiles raised the pigs because pigs were unclean to them. There's a whole lot more examples of this, but you get the general idea here. What Jesus is doing, Matthew makes this crystal clear, is he's offering The literal physical kingdom of God to the Israelites, if they would just accept their Messiah, if they would just accept their Savior. Yes, He certainly still would have had to die upon the cross. That was predetermined before the foundations of the earth, the Bible tells us. But He's offering the Jewish people the kingdom if they will but accept their Messiah. They repent of their sin. However, as we'll see eventually here in Matthew chapter 12, ultimately, what do they do? They refuse to repent. They refuse to accept their Messiah. They won't do it. And that's why we see at the end of the book of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 8, which is called the Great Commission, that's like our mission as a church, okay? What does it say? Go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples of the Jewish people? No, of all nations, There's a drastic shift here that takes place after Matthew chapter 12 when they reject their Messiah. It's not just a gospel that's supposed to go to the Jewish people at that point. It shifts and goes to the whole world. By chapter 28, that ship has all but sailed. I wish we had more time to explain why all this is so significant, but I'm competing with the smell of good food out there, so I'm going to make this a little bit shorter. There is a point we need to make here because this matters a lot. What does Jesus command his disciples to do in this passage? Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, and cast out demons. Now here's the question I have for you. Is that a command that applies to all of Jesus' disciples for all time? Or is it just for the 12 here? This is a big question. This is a vitally important question. All right, because there's a lot of people out there who will tell you that this is applicable for us as modern day disciples living today, 2,000 years later. They will tell you that if we have the spirit of God within us, we'll do the same things as Jesus and these apostles did. I'm going to tell you this morning, that's absolutely not true. It's a dangerous falsehood is what it is. It's absolutely not true, especially according to this passage. This passage, you cannot ground that in this passage. And here's why. For one, is our message as a church just to the Jews? No, it's not. Here their their task was just for the Jews. Do you see the difference there? There's obviously a difference. We bring the gospel to everybody. They did just to the Jews here. So that's definitely a difference. All right? And that would be a problem if it's not, because about everybody in this room is a Gentile, which means we're gonna host a whole 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 lot of trouble here. Because That means the gospel's not for us. Another thing, can Christians have more than one pair of shoes, ladies shout yes. (laughs) Yes, they can. Uh, Are missionaries to other countries forbidden to raising support money for their ministry? No. Are they banned from bringing luggage along? No. But if this text applies to us today, then they can't bring luggage. They only get one shirt. They only get one pair of shoes. They don't get to bring two pairs. See the problem with equally, I'm not saying we can't apply this at all, there is some application, but equally applying this text to us disciples today, it's a problem. We can't equally apply this passage to ourselves as it applies to the 12 disciples of Jesus not only would that make Scripture a huge, massive, walking contradiction of itself, but it would make evangelism and bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth a ridiculous task. It'd be ridiculous. One more thing, and I'm not trying to belabor the point here just because, I really want us to see the importance of understanding the Bible in its proper context. Because if you don't, you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. And that's called error. It's called a lie. Matthew 10.23 says this, When they persecute you in one town, do what? Flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now in verse 24, which we'll get to next week, Jesus warns them that they won't, right there as we just read, verse 23 and 24, they won't have got through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. But what does he mean by that? Because if this passage equally applies to us and the 12 disciples, then where is Jesus? Why isn't he back yet? Christian missionaries have already gone through all all these towns, right? The gospel's reached all the towns of Israel. That's not a 2,000-year-long job. They got that done pretty early. See the problem here? Well, this passage does apply to us. This passage does not equally apply to us, church. It can't, right? Right? There is a dispensational difference going on here in this text, and so we can't equally claim it fully for us as the disciples did. It applies to us differently. When Jesus says here that he will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before he comes back, he's not talking about his second coming. He's not. He's talking to the 12 disciples specifically, letting them know that it won't be a very long before he comes and joins them. Right? He sends them out. He's like, don't worry before you... Before you get through all the towns, I'll, I'll have came and joined you. So well, It's important to have us, when we look at the scriptures, to look at scripture in its context, not to just cherry pick verses out and apply it to us because, hey, that sounds good. We have to look at the context. The context matters. The reality here is then, it does not apply to us equally. At the same time here, the, Jesus's task was their task which is exactly why he gave them apostolic authority, as verse 1 says. He gave them authority to do what? To heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and cast out demons. He gave them authority, not you, not me. You can't do that. I cannot do that. And the reason he gave them this ability was why? to Prove the message was authentic. That's the whole point of it. That's why Jesus did all those miracles, to prove that the message was authentic, to show that he had power and authority. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. Here's, I'd really love to jump in this, but we don't have time. I keep telling you that, but we don't. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The signs of a what? True apostle were performed among you with utmost patience. With what? What was the signs? Signs and wonders and mighty works. It's Miracles. 1 Corinthians 4, in that passage, Paul's dealing with some big mouth bullfrogs who were trying to, you know, silence Paul a little bit, and when he's not there, and in that chapter, here's what he says to them. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but power. What kind of power did these apostles wield? Remember Ananias and Sapphira? That's church discipline. (laughs) They hauled them out dead. This is power that is a whole lot more powerful than those we see on TV lengthening legs and getting rid of migraines temporarily. Totally different thing. This was a unique thing in the birth of Christ's church. And it was unique. And that means... It was unique to the early church. It's no longer here. First Corinthians 4.9 says this, For I think God has exhibited us apostles as what? Last of all. What does last of all mean? It means last of all. Last of all what? Of all the prophets, of the revelation that was coming out. Because he says, it goes on, he says, We become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. They were last. The apostles were the last true prophets of God who brought in the new revelation of Christ. It was a vitally important revelation. What's revelation? It's God's truth, His message. It's a vitally important God given message to the church, and this authority was validated by the remarkable signs and wonders that they performed. It fit with the rest of Scripture. It passed the test for prophecy, which we find all over in Scripture, not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament, which is 100% accuracy. They didn't get stuff wrong here. This matters, church. This is important. One pastor I follow quite a bit, he put it this way. He said, The number one issue that Western church is facing today is where does our authority ride? Where does it lie? What does it rest upon? The Word of God? Or my thoughts? My premonitions? It's a big, big issue. The message matters because it's important, but secondly, because it's free. In verses 9 through 13, Jesus tells his ambassadors to give the message freely. Don't charge for it, he says. He's telling them not to turn his message into personal profit. And why not? Because it's a message they received freely. They didn't pay for it. They got it freely. If you found salvation in Christ, did you earn it? Talk to me, church. Did you earn it? No, you did not. What did you do to get it? Nothing. It was the gift of God so that no one can boast, as Ephesians 2 says. And Jesus' rationale here is quite simple, isn't it? He's saying, you were freely given it, so give it freely to others. Don't you dare charge for them. And remember, this was a time where a lot of people would go around and claim to be able to cast out demons, and they would charge for it. And so he's like, don't you be like them. My messengers are not like that. You received it freely, so give it freely. Because if you don't, that's quite hypocritical. And today, what do we see with many of the modern day apostles, the modern day prophets on TV who are offering their services? Well, yeah, they don't straight up put a price tag on their healing, but they basically do. It's no different. They say, if you want blessing, you've got to give to the ministry. You want God's blessing in your life, then sow a faith seed of $100 and God will sprout that bad boy into $1,000. That's a common message you hear. You want to be healed, then give to God so God can give to you. And by giving to God, they always mean their ministry for some reason, which lines their pockets. It's a common thing. You get the idea. However, ambassadors of Christ don't operate this way. We simply share what we've been given, which is a message of hope and peace through Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of the world. And to the degree to which you've experienced Christ's healing is the degree to which you will urgently bring the message of good news to those who desperately need it. Why does Jesus tell the disciples not to carry a staff and to only bring one shirt and not two? Why is he telling them to travel so lightly here? Because it's an urgent message. Go now. The Messiah is here. He's come. The shepherd of Israel has come for his lost sheep. It is an urgent message that makes Paul Revere's message look like someone calling about our car's extended warranty by comparison. By comparison, all other messages are pointless. For Christ's message is the most important message of them all. It tells us that the deliverer has come. The redeemer is here. The savior of the world has arrived. And he's come and offering salvation freely and fully. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to buy it. You don't have to be lucky enough like you got to win the lottery. You simply receive it freely and fully by grace through faith in Jesus Christ as you repent of your sins and trust in the one and only Savior who buries our sin as far from the east as from the west. However, if you don't accept it, If you go back to sleep because it's irritating to hear, it's uncomfortable, if you don't respond to Christ's ambassadors who bring the gospel message of good news, it will be the most costly mistake you will ever make, which leads us to our third point. The message matters because it is important, because it is free, and third, because it is costly. Have you ever missed out on something because you didn't listen? Many times. How about maybe you had a friend who told you about a really good stock you should buy, and you just put it off, and then all of a sudden you looked it up, and you're like, oh, man, (laughs) hurts a bit, doesn't it? This is the most costly mistake you can ever make, by far, by far. Verses 11 and 12 talk about peace being upon the house and those who receive the apostles. Talks about the peace returning if they reject the apostles. And what's this talking about? The idea is this. To reject the king's messengers is to reject the king. Basically, that's it. And if that king is powerful, for he is actually all powerful, then what? You're in for some serious trouble if you reject that king's authority over your life. In verse 14, Jesus tells his disciples to shake off the dust of their feet uh, for whatever house or town rejects their message. And what is that all about? Like shaking off the dust? Like, what does that mean? Well, it's visualizing judgment. That's what it's, that's what it's showing. The Jewish people, they believed actually that the Gentile nations, like the dirt in those nations was actually unclean. And so when they would leave a Gentile nation to go back home, they would shake the dust off their feet because they didn't want even the unclean dust of the unclean Gentiles on them. All right? That's, that's the idea here. And so what this is symbolizing, and this is a really bold statement, it's symbolizing that, hey, you know what? You Jewish towns, you're unclean as the Gentiles are. You think that would have been offensive to Jewish people back then? Absolutely it would have been offensive. Because why? They didn't think they were unclean. They were the, the sons and daughters of Abraham. They believed that they were clean simply because they were Jewish. Hey, I was born into a Jewish home. I practiced the Jewish religion. I'm clean. I'm, don't, don't you say I'm unclean like those Gentiles. But they weren't clean. Not even close. In fact, as verse 15 says, these Jewish houses and towns who rejected Christ's ambassadors, this is a pretty bold thing. He says they're actually more guilty than Sodom and Gomorrah. If you know anything about Sodom and Gomorrah, those were towns that God wiped out by raining fire from heaven upon them. And he's saying, on the day of judgment, it's going to be better for them than for these Jewish towns. You're more sinful, more guilty than they are even. That would have been a jaw-dropping moment for the Jews to hear that. It would have likely infuriated them. Largely speaking, as we know, the Jewish people rejected their Messiah. They rejected his kingdom. And why? Because they refused to repent of their sins and turned to the only one who could provide forgiveness of sin and the healing that we desperately need. And because of their costly decision, instead of finding peace with God, they will one day soon on the day of judgment find the wrath of God waiting for them with the force of a trillion sons. So the question is, how about you? Have you responded to the Messiah rightly or wrongly? Have you heard his message of repent of your sins and done so? Maybe you're here and you realize that you have been rejecting Christ's gospel message of salvation, which is given freely and fully through the grace of God through, by faith. And maybe you've thought that your sin isn't a problem with God. Why? Well, <laughs> I grew up in the church. I I practice Christianity. I say say my prayers. I pray sometimes. I believe in God. I try to be a good person. Come on, I'm not as bad as some people. That's got to be enough, right? Wrong. It's not enough. Just as the Jewish, I mean, that's exactly the way the Jewish people thought. And Jesus said what to them? It's going to be better on the day of Sodom and Gomorrah than it is for you, which means judgment, judgment. It's not enough. The Jewish people thought, we don't need you, Jesus. We are good people. We believe in God. We're the descendants of Abraham, God's chosen one. But none of that church can heal us. Not even even an ounce of healing from that. No moral obedience can heal us of our deepest problem, which is sin. Only Christ, the son of the living God, has the power and authority to heal us. And so unless we accept him, We won't be healed and we will die in our trespasses and sins and then one day stand on the day of judgment before a holy God. Matthew 11, verses 4 through 6 says this. Jesus answered, this is the disciples, John sent his disciples, he's like, is is Jesus the one or are we waiting for somebody else? And here's what he says. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me, he says. Don't take offense to the healer's message. Don't reject the only one who can actually heal you. Instead, repent of your sins, for the kingdom of God is here. Repent of your sins and turn to Christ, because if you don't, when the full kingdom arrives physically to this earth, you will be cast out, and that will be the most like, costly decision you've ever made. And so instead, repent of your sins and turn to Christ, and then join us as a church as we endeavor to Paul Revere it up around here a bit, as we bring the most important message of all to those who so desperately need it. Christians, how are you doing with this? Does your Christian life better reflect the urgency of Paul Revere or the guard who just wanted to go back to sleep? Are you urgently sharing the gospel message of Jesus with others out of your immense gratitude and your thanksgiving for the salvation that you were given without price, given to you freely? You didn't have to pay nothing for it. If not, why not? If not, remember That though your salvation costs you nothing, it costs Christ absolutely everything. It costs Christ the cross where he suffered, bled, and died as payment for your sin, for my sin. As the scripture says, by his stripes and wounds we are healed. Are you thankful for that? Does your life show that you are thankful for that? Surely these are things that we should be pondering and examining in our hearts this Thanksgiving season. For we, the saved and redeemed people of God, have the most important reason of them all to be just so thankful. Why? Because we have received salvation. We've received pardon for our sins. We've been reconciled with God. We've been brought back into the garden and we were brought back in Because Christ, the most costly and precious one of all, laid down his life so that we might receive the gift of salvation by grace through faith. It's the most important message of all church. May we as a church never forget this and do everything that we can to bring this important message to those who so desperately need it. Father, I thank you for this text. There's a lot in here today, Lord a lot we only got to cover at a surface level, but we ask that through the power of your spirit that you would use the truth we heard today to challenge us, to shape our affections, and to mold us more into the image of Christ Jesus. Father, if there's one here today who's trusting in their goodness, trusting in their works, who has not come to the place of repentance where they've realized even their good works are filthy rags before you. I pray for them especially, Lord, that they would right now today trust in Jesus, repent of their sins, and receive salvation freely and fully through Christ. Father, I pray for the Christian today who's been wandering who has maybe at one point in their life realized the urgency of the gospel message, but they're back asleep because it's comfortable. I pray, Lord, that you would pull them out of their comfort zone, that you would wake them up, and that they too would go out as ambassadors for Christ and preach the message to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Help us to be ready for Christ's appearing. Help us not to shrink back when we see the glorious one appear and be ready for him. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You stand with us as we sing our closing song, All Creatures of Our God and King.